step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following episode of Bread for the People is brought to you by Side Hustle Bread, Long Island's handcrafted artisanal bread company. Side Hustle Bread is a family-run virtual bakery that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. Head on over to SideHustleBread.com for more information, upcoming appearances, and merchandise. My name's Jim Serpico, and this... Should I start with my name? Or should I start with this is Bread for the People? Do you like it like this? Welcome to Bread. Or do you like it like this? Welcome. Ready? Welcome to Bread for the People. Mine... Is there a script? Welcome to Bread for the People. I'm Jim Serpico. My guest today is an American actor and a director. You may know him from the ABC sitcom Step by Step. You may know him from the primetime soap opera Dallas, where he plays the nicer brother and the youngest brother, Bobby Ewing. What you may not know, some of you may know, but I didn't know, he's also a sourdough baker. He's also the co-founder of Duffy's Sourdough, along with his wife, Linda. I'm always happy to have a fellow baker on the podcast. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. Oh my gosh, it's so nice to be here. And you put the the fear in me now. You're a baker too, so you're going to vet everything I say. Oh dear. I'm going to vet everything you say. Uh, on okay. your website, you have a quote. I'd like to start with the quote. Okay. Maybe it's Linda's quote. All of this progress continually returns to the simple reality of coming downstairs in the morning and being welcomed by that amazing odor of the starter brimming with new life. The rest of the procedure is my meditation of gratitude when I mix the new batch of batter, knead the dough, and see it rise and blossom. That's mine. Now, I can re- That's your quote? Yep. I can relate to that quote. I would like to hear from you where that really comes from and and how you connected to all of this well it, it's an it's a long process if you you know if i get too deep in the woods you can just cut me off but this this sourdough starter according to the history that's in our our website you know has been in the family for over 70 years uh, it was given to my mother in alaska by a very old woman who claimed it came with the gold miners in the alaska gold rush we couldn't obviously verify that, but I at least know that it's 73 years old now. And I didn't have any interest in it, to be quite honest, all the time I was growing up. My mother baked. My mother would have sourdough pancakes in the morning. She didn't go into the cinnamon rolls and fruit tarts, etc. It was It was subsistence baking. 
And then my sister, when she graduated from high school, took a starter off of mom's starter. And it still did not interest me until I graduated from college. And my sister would bake for me. I was a starving student and she would bake rolls and things like that for me. And after I graduated- Did you guys go, I'm sorry, did you guys go to the same college? Because I think you went to the University of Washington. Yeah, we both graduated from the University of Washington. And um, okay. she just and she was in the oceanography department, so they would go out and get fish and shrimp and all the other kind of stuff. So I was fed well with seafood and sourdough. But when I graduated from college and went off on my own, it was the time that I, I really said, well, I've got to do something for myself. And I had no money. And baking was a money-saving operation for me. My sister okay. then pulled, pulled a starter off of hers, and I kept that starter. And I would sporadically do it. But what the long story hopefully culminating now is I wasn't prepared for the effect of the process when you bake. I was a a moderately successful cooker, in other words, and I, I understood the joy of cooking, but I was always cooking with a glass of wine in my hand. So I wasn't sure where the joy came from. But when you're baking, when you start literally from what looks like a dormant puddle of goo and you... You know, you follow the instructions, which my sister gave me. I I always kept a pure starter off of the batch. And then I would take that leftover and I would add the ingredients, whatever they happened to be. And it was, it was rudimentary. It was the tiny bit of salt, sugar, flour, stir it up. Every once in a while, I would put in my batch commercial yeast just because it speeded up the process and I would make dinner rolls and I would survive on those dinner rolls. But it was the process once you start mixing it and the goo becomes a solid clay-like mixture and you dump it on the kneading board and then everything changes. Kneading bread is, it, 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 I, every once in a while I'll tell somebody, you ever see a baby kitten when they're nursing and they just keep those hands moving back, their paws back and forth and back and forth. And kneading bread is like that. I don't know what it touches in terms of your internal mechanism. But it's a satisfying moment when things tend to peripherize and you are just in that mode of making something living. Yeah. At the end of it, it's still just a, a cannonball size of wad. And then you put it in the bowl and you cover it with a towel. And literally within two hours, the towel rises. Mm-hmm. And it's this gigantic, living, air-filled delicious smelling substance. And from then on, I go crazy because I I got very inventive. I would, you know, roll out small pieces in my hand about the size of a lemon and then take the rolling pin, make them smooth. And I put fruit in the middle and some cinnamon and some nutmeg and a dollop of jam or whatever I had and fold up the corners, stick them in the oven, baste them with a little butter. And and I had fruit tarts. And when when I had children, I would cook for them. And now I have grandchildren. And literally, I'm a hero <laughs> because I can, I can sit with my grandchildren and show them how to make something from scratch that lives and breathes and grows and tastes great, smells. And it's an accomplishment that it's, it's ephemeral because it's gone and you have to do it again. It's not like making a sculpture or something. Right. It is. Uh, it, you know, so it, I can become very metaphysical about the whole thing, or I can become exactly, you know, just get the job done and go. Uh, right, right, right. And same with me. Those, 
When you have those moments in the kitchen by yourself or when Linda's there with me, it's a, it's a special time of, of bonding. And we do this so that families can do this so that, you know, it can, you know, d- people used to sit around and watch Dallas 35 years ago and they would watch it yeah. as a family and they would talk Absolutely. about it, would converse and they would go on and it would become part of their family culture. And I think that sort of thing has, has gone or diminished. And if we can get people in the kitchen having fun, baking, you know, the kids can do what they can do. The parents can do what they can do. And everybody just gets it done. And it's another of those moments where a family can be a family. So that's how I started this. I'm a television producer for 30 years and I would bake on the weekends with my family. We would make pasta. We took a Mm. cooking class in um, Florence and then we started making bread Yeast breads at first, and then I was gifted a sourdough. And oh boy, I I've been baking every day for three years. Oh wow! We do farmers markets. I bake in bulk now. Oh Um, okay. But you know, um, so I interviewed Kelly Carlin, who's George Carlin's daughter, a couple of weeks ago, and she's a public speaker and a life coach, and she's a Buddhist. Ah, so am I. I. I'm aware. And she pointed out to me, this is your meditation, Jim. Because I was talking about how I love the repetition. Mm-hmm. And even if it's, you know, I had to scale down the varieties I was making because it was getting unwieldy. So I really have perfected, for me, I'm sure it could be better, but, you know, I've been doing the same breads over and over. Right. Uh, and I do love the process. And I love how, without trying hard, but just spending the time, Something magical has happened. The dough, even though it's higher hydration, has become easier for me to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do wonder, from your perspective, is there some relation to Buddhism and meditation with the process of bread making? Well, I, you know, I've been a Buddhist now for over 50 years. And mm-hmm. My form of Buddhism is morning and evening, I chant verbally, out loud. And for the past, you know, 25 years, I I would take an hour every morning. No matter what my schedule was, if I had a call that was five o'clock in the morning on a set, you know, for makeup, I would back up the clock because I got more out of the time spent chanting than I would have that same time as an additional 40 minutes to an hour of sleep. So Mm -hmm. I learned that early on. So there is a correlation to not just the repetitive nature of kneading the bread, but uh, when I chant, uh, you know, you can chant in a very meditative state or you can chant with your monkey brain just climbing around the jungle in your ears. It, just, it can be either way. But the chanting has the same effect, and that effect carries me through the day. And I find the same sense with doing bread. I can be in the zone, as they say, you know, when you're doing the bread and really get into it. And like I say, the periphery just disappears. Or I can do it while I'm watching the news. But but to me, the, 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 the analogy is the same result is there. The same bread rises, the same odors come out, the same texture in your mouth is, is there when, when, the job is done. Whether you've been in a deep meditative state or whether you've been completely aware of your surroundings. And that to me is the the magic of, of the process of baking. It it's feeds your internal needs by its repetitive nature, by mm-hmm. it 
And and I also, you know, it, it's a very strange thing. I have two children, of course, who are now adults. They're almost 50 years old. But in the course of raising children, you you get a tactile sense with your hands. You know, you test a bottle, you know, on the on the nape of your wrist, you know, to see the temperature. I judge how much kneading and flour I do when I'm kneading the bread by feeling the moisture temperature content right on the nape of my wrist. And it and it inevitably reminds me of my children as babies. So I'm immediately wow. my brain is taken back. 50 years, 48, 40, you know, that many years ago, just by that moisture content on my wrist. And when I, when I feel that at the right content, whatever that word might be, I know that it's, right. it's ready to put in the bowl and let it rise. And if it's too wet, I don't like it. If it's too dry, I don't like it. And, and again, like you, over repetitive nature, I've been doing this now for 20 years, you know, baking my breads. And I'm I'm like programmed like a computer in my hands and my my mm-hmm. nose. I can tell you know mm-hmm. literally that quote. When I come down in the morning, I smell that yeast, and I can tell that. I call it the babies in the oven, which is probably not very PC, but <laughs> you know I put it when when the starter is is taking its eight to ten hours. I stick it in the microwave because it's a consolidated, same temperature environment. Cover it with a towel. And I can't yeah. smell it when I put it in, but when I come down in the morning, it's permeated the entire kitchen. And I just know, oh, that baby's in the, the baby's in the oven and it's ready to go. And I pull it out and sure enough, it's frothy and bubbly. And, and you realize this same yeast flew through the air in Alaska hundred years ago. And That's, here it's that, here amazing. It yeah. Now, I, I don't know a ton about Buddhism, but I do know quite a bit about mindfulness. I don't know if you do, um, but- Everything I hear when people talk about certain things related to Buddhism reminds me very much of mindfulness Mm -hmm. in terms of like you were just talking about your mind, monkey mind going in all these different directions or, you know, being able to bake bread while watching the news or not. But funny enough, I discovered you when I was baking bread because the only time I watch morning shows is if I'm baking bread. Otherwise, I'd be in my office, you know, worried about, I don't know, some production or pitch or nerve-wracking, whatever. So even though my mind was distracted on, I think it was the Today Show that you guys were on, you know, I was doing something I wouldn't normally be doing. Right. But that being said, I am curious about the relationship to Buddhism and mindfulness, if you know anything about this. Well, I, I, I'm certainly not an expert on mindfulness, and I wouldn't say I'm an expert on Buddhism. I am a, a, a practitioner of Buddhism. But I have, over the years, you know, I've, I've had discussions with almost every religious denomination that you can imagine, and very productive, nice, you know, sharing of information type of conversations, not heated religious debates. And I have the, and this hopefully doesn't sound like a setup question, but there is a similarity between what I do with my baking and, and specifically a free unmanufactured uh, sourdough yeast. That, and the fact that that yeast has been in, in all the intents and purposes around forever since the world sure. began. Yeast. I mean, there it is. So yeast has a common purpose. 
And then it can be used for so many different things from making wine to what we do to, you know, uh, yeast cultures that, you know, can cure infections. And, and now the study, you might be aware of this, is that they think that natural yeast in terms of breads breaks down the gluten that makes gluten intolerant people able to digest sourdough breads. So it has this magical yeah. content. Well, so do most philosophies at their core. They become anthropomorphized, you know, when people start to use them as philosophies and religions, etc. But at the core is basically this compassionate denomination that, that nature has. And we're a part of nature. A yeast cell is part of nature. And it has a pure sort of purpose which is what we get to experience when we bake and we see it rise and it grows and it becomes dormant again. And, and we see this ongoing manifest, non-manifest process going with the yeast. I think a lot of philosophies, if they would forget the human traits that have been imbued in them and went truly to the basics, um, and I think they would find such a commonality that they, they can keep their personalities. You know, people dress in different styles. That's perfectly fine. But I think, you know, the recognition that all things, you know, have that boson particle, if you want to get into, you know, physics, uh, that it is the same. It is the foundation on which the sign behind your head right now is, or the wine barrels over your right shoulder. Is There's a commonality when you take it all down. And it is that, uh -huh. that life is the same. All life is the same at its basic rhythm. And so Buddhism says that. I have very good Catholic Buddhist friends. I have very good Jewish Buddhist friends who have found that commonality and say, oh, I can practice this form of Buddhism. And it doesn't impede, you know, my mental um, dedication to my own philosophy and religion. So... Um, that's, you know, that's to me the commonality that, that also the yeast, especially sourdough yeast, not, not Fleischmann's, no offense Fleischmann's, but they were the first ones to commercially make yeast. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's not a commercial aspect of, of what we do, you and I, and, and the people that, you know, bake with their hands for themselves, you know, don't take it out of the plastic wrapper, uh, you know, really make it grow and live and breathe and feed you. That's its purpose. You know, it's to sustain yeah. us. As as our philosophies are, so I don't know mindfulness as a as a as a practice, but the little bit that I do know, there is there is, as you say, a, a great commonality. Sure. So, what is your? Tell me a little bit more about Duffy Sourdough as a business. Okay. What is well, the mission, and what are you guys doing? Well, well, this is the thing. You know, I'm I'm a great idea person, and then I have another glass huh? of wine and go to sleep. So at, at one point, about a year ago, year and a half ago, I had baked some stuff and, and Linda was, and I were having, I think it was in the morning sourdough pancakes. And I offhandedly said, you know, maybe I should just do this as a profession and sell some of this. And she was like, oh, that's a great idea. Well, I forgot about it. It never left her mind. The next thing I know, she's on the computer. She's looking up uh, business things, what, what it takes. She had a friend here in Colorado, which is where I'm talking to you from, um, who is an entrepreneur and teaches a class at the college. And we had dinner mm. at his house, and I brought the sourdough rolls for dinner. And everybody oohed and mm. nod, and they loved the story. So Linda and 
Steve, the entrepreneur, put their heads together, and we uh, Duffy's Dough was the subject matter for a semester of college course here in Colorado. <laughs> he divided his okay. classes into pods of three to four people. They took our idea. Yeah. We pitched the idea to them. They took it, and for a semester, they built a business, and then they pitched wow. it to us a la Shark Tank. And mm -hmm. we liked one because it was one of two that took the sourdough and dehydrated it, which we thought that's really? the absolute key to, you know, commercially sending it any place. Because as you know, you can put it in a jar and it'll blow the top off that jar if it expands <laughs> at the right rate in the wrong circumstances. So shipping was a problem and this person solved that for us. So Linda then took that and we were on the road in the UK for seven months doing a play. Every single day she was on the computer constructing this business, getting it from the, wow. the design of the box to the logos, to the trademarks, to finding lawyers and, and accountants. And, and we got back to Colorado and we started this business in September. And uh, so, the so that's what you're doing. You're, special, you're specializing in dehydrated sourdough starter. Exactly. And in its dehydrated form, the starter can just lie dormant in a jar for years on end. It right. is as yeah, if it's absolutely basically, it's basically what uh, Fleischmann's has done in making their their yeast that you can buy and it can be in your pantry for 10 years. You open it up, put in a little water, it'll blossom. Just I love the blossoming of yeast anyway, commercial yeast. And then you bake with it. So dehydrated Duffy dough starter is a pure starter from Alaska without any input other than flour, sugar, and water in a dehydrated form. And then you take it and make whatever you want out of it. And that was all Linda's basically inspiration. I'm, I'm good at carrying things and pointing. And she's the person who carries out and points me in the right direction. That's great, man. Now, you grew up in Montana? That's right, yeah. Little town in Montana, um, 600 people. How many? 600 Wow. And, yeah. Uh, are you watching Yellowstone? I've seen several of Yellowstone. I watch until it makes me cry because I'm not on it. And then I stop. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, I've always fantasized about Montana, but that, that show, uh, it's so pretty. It's so pretty how they shoot it and what they do. It's, it's wonderful. Um, and it, it does, it does depict Montana in a beautiful light. And it's what I grew up knowing about it, going back to it for years, uh, but when I was starting to work consistently, getting to Montana in the 70s was a, a full day, if not day and a half process of, you, you had to fly from LA to, I think, Salt Lake, and then Salt Lake to Missoula. And then Missoula, you'd get in a car wherever your place was and drive for two hours. It was, you know, you can't just commute, basically. So I made Oregon my Montana. And I got a ranch in Oregon in 1990 that I've had now for okay. over years. Did you go to high school in Montana, in the small no. town? No, I did not. I went to, I, I left there when I was 12 years old. That's when my dad and the family moved to Seattle. My sister was ah. in high school. So my sister, uh, to this day, maintains friendships that she uh, developed when she was in high school there. When I was, you know, I'm uh, almost four years younger than my sister, and I was not in that place in school where you develop that kind of friendships. So I didn't go back to Montana on my times off very much because I had no people in common, basically. My friends are all from the Northwest. Got it. 
Now, your sister was um, an international champion swimmer, correct? Yes, she was a, an international skin diving champion. Um, she was a competition swimmer in high school, but she became, she fell in love with uh, underwater. Uh, she was going to get her PhD in, in oceanography and she got her master's, but she didn't make it to her PhD because she took a karate class. And in the karate class were a bunch of police officers taking class and she switched. She like a roundhouse for a train. She went into that class did a 180 and came out wanting to be a policewoman. And she retired from the Seattle City Police Department about 10, 12 years ago as a lieutenant, her and married a lieutenant. So they live now as far away from the Northwest as you can get in Palm Desert, California. Is she still baking? Oh, yes. She's a crazy baker. And, and to be quite honest, there were a couple of times in, in my college career where I killed my sourdough starter. You know, I. <laughs> I just totally, it was, it was manslaughter basically. And the good thing about it is I went back to my sister. She just pulled a starter off of hers and I was back at it again. So, you know, it's, it, and with the dehydrated, you don't have to worry about it. If I killed my sourdough starter, I'd be finished. I always panic about that. Well, I do too. You know, That's why, you know, in our, in our kit and in our, you know, our book that we send with the recipes and the instructions and everything, the biggest letterhead and everything is when you get your starter activated, save one cup, put right. it in the refrigerator, put it back in the jar before you do anything. Because the minute you've actually killed the essence of your, uh, of your starter, if you even add something other than sugar, flour, and water, sure. if you, I've, I've, we've got, got emails saying, oh, will it still be the original starter and keep forever because I put an egg in it? I went, uh, <laughs> uh, no. I don't no. think so. I don't think so. Somewhere, and I, I, maybe it was Wikipedia or something, they talk about you going to college and blowing out your vocal cords, yep. rupturing them. Is that Both what's the story behind this? How did that uh, happen? Uh, you're a you're a 18 to 20 year old Irishman who thinks he's bulletproof, and right. you're you're in a special acting program, and everything you do seems to be great. So you know, I was. Not typical. I don't want to say every college student is like that, but I, I drank too much, lived too hard, and overworked my vocal cords to the point that I kept losing my upper register. And my solution was go in a room and scream and yell until your voice comes back. And it, wow. it, worked, it worked for a while. And quite literally one day, uh, and I sounded like, my God, Neville Brand and, and you know, who, who else you can imagine with that horrible voice. And I had a coughing fit during rehearsal and it, they ruptured and blood just, I coughed up blood, went to the doctor and they had hemorrhaged to the extent that the, the blood vessels didn't coagulate and, and heal up. So the vocal cords just kept filling up with blood until they got too much blood and the coughing ruptured them. And the doctor said, well, we can operate and fix them, then there'll be no guarantee what your voice will sound like with scar tissue. Or you can go on vocal rest and see if it, they can heal themselves. So for four months, I did not say a single word. I didn't hum. I didn't make them. I made two mistakes. Both of them were swear words uh, that happened to come out as a knee-jerk reaction when I did something stupid. But literally for four months, I, I pretended I was incapable of speaking. I would use notepads. 
My sister would call me. We had a whistling format that, you know, two whistles, yes, one whistle, no, et cetera. And she would check in on me. Um, I would go to the grocery store with a, with a notepad. And if questions were asked, I would write. And people thought I was a mute, anybody who didn't know me. And then well, I that- finally, I finally was given permission by my vocal doctor to start briefly talking. But the rules were I couldn't talk in a room with more than two people. I couldn't talk when the phone, when the television or the radio or anything was on. I was not allowed to talk in an automobile or a moving object. And they were all things because I had to start literally from scratch again with baby vocal cords. And I ended up getting back on stage. I recovered to the extent that I started my theatrical career, although two years late because I had to drop out of the program I was in. I started again. I, I did theater for a while, went to New York did a couple of off-off-Broadway showcases, finally got to L.A. and landed Man from Atlantis. And from 1976 on, I never stopped working. Wow. Now, was this when you started studying how to become a mime? Uh, well, mime was part, just- of our, was part of our schooling in the program. And what, what that did for me was when I was unable to act on stage, I could teach movement classes to small groups of students, etc. So I was able to eke out a living doing that. But interesting thing also is at the same time my vocal cords blew out, I met the woman who became my wife, who was the person who introduced me to Buddhism. And when I told her, you know, I've, you know I'm, I'm never going to act again because this is my problem, she said, oh, that's your, that's your problem. You're right. But because it's your problem, you can fix it. So here's this thing I do. And she taught me how to chant. And it was the worst thing I could do for my voice. I would chant literally for five minutes and my voice would disappear. And she would say, no, that's like, she was a ballet dancer. She said, that's like sore muscles when you do ballet. Just relax, take your time, do it again. And literally uh, it was the chanting that exercised my vocal cords the proper way. Because I chanted very softly to the beginning. And um, I ended up, you know, on stage, grateful. And it was one of the first big things that I saw that, this practice of Buddhism could do. It was a repetitive nature. It also had a mystical side. You know, it was that common thing. If my vocal cords are the same as everything else, then then I can direct their process. And that's what I did. It's amazing. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. Give me the proper name of your company. It's called Duffy's Doe, D-U-F-F-Y-S. D-O-U-G-H. And if you go to duffysdough.com, it'll take you to the website. There's, you know, all kinds of things, silly stuff that Linda and I do because we love it. Awesome. All right, Patrick, thank you so much. It's nice getting to know you. I'm really intrigued by your journey and uh, happy holidays and have a great time. I hope you spend it with the family, man. I'm going to do that. We're going to try and see if we can invent eggnog sourdough pancakes. And then you should dehydrate them. (laughs) <laughs> we could ship them around the country. <laughs> All right, Patrick. Okay. Take care, Jim. Thank, Thank you so you. much. You too. This episode of Bread for the People was brought to you by Side Hustle Bread, Long Island's handcrafted artisanal bread company. Side Hustle Bread is a family-run business that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head on over to iTunes and rate and review this episode. Reviewing and rating is the most effective way to help us grow our audience. This episode was produced by Milestone TV and Film. I'm your host, Jim Serpico. Blessed be the bread, everyone.